Romans 1. Now, just by way of some review, because we always have new people uh, watching live stream or in the sanctuary here, and so I don't want to just rush in and pick up where we left off. They're going to be kind of lost. So let me just review quickly. In our study of Romans, we have moved into the main body of the epistle. The main body covers uh, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 15, verse 13. And it's divided into five sections. The first section falls under the heading of condemnation. It runs from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. Condemnation means judgment. Paul use, wants to, first of all, uh, talk about judgment because he wants to prove, first of all, that the whole world, the whole human race apart from Christ is condemned by God. Condemnation is a judicial term denoting that fallen man is guilty before a holy, righteous God of violating his laws and is thereby condemned, or in other words, sentenced by him to spend eternity in hell for those crimes. This is why Paul begins it, this section with the words, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all who are ungodly, chapter 1, verse 18, and then ends this first section in chapter 3, verse 20, with the words, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. And as we said last time, here Paul is acting like a prosecuting attorney who starts by proving that the pagan, the ungodly, the pagan is condemned or guilty before a holy God. Well, everyone would say, well, of course, they ought to go to hell. Oh, wait, I'm not done, Paul would say. Then he moves on to the moralist to show that those who think they're right with God because they live, quote-unquote, moral lives are almost always hypocrites, but they're also condemned. And so religious folks would say, well, yeah, they, those two should go to hell. Oh, wait, I'm not done yet. Then he moves on to the religionist. In this case, those who embrace Judaism to show that keeping the law of God, in other words, practicing religion, will not justify anybody either. And so the verdict, all apart from Christ, are guilty and condemned. And again, it's important that Paul begins the main body of this epistle by proving the whole world apart from Jesus Christ is condemned because, as we have said numerous times before, before people will see their need for a Savior, they first must be shown, they must be revealed to them that they are guilty sinners. This is why Paul, start, before he launches into the gospel and what it means how a person can get saved he first shows that without christ you're condemned jesus said um you know he said that um uh you know he came into the world uh to save people not to condemn and he who believes is not condemned but he or she who does not believe is condemned already the whole world was condemned by god in the garden of eden when man rebelled against god and every person born since that time, born of Adam, is born a fallen sinner condemned by God. Everybody. Some people don't really care and live their lives uh, as sinfully as they desire. Others, they feel bad because, you know, they have a conscience or they try to live a moral life. Some even go take it as far as to live a religious life. But Paul is saying everyone apart from Christ, no matter if you're a pagan or a moralist or a religionist, you're all condemned before God. Because once you're a sinner, once you're a fallen sinner, well, 
What was the old commercial? I've fallen in, can't get up. That was the human race. And if Jesus Christ hadn't come down to pick man up because of what he did, he lived the perfect life. He went to the cross and died in our place. And when he rose from the dead, he conquered death for all time. And we'll talk more about that as we go. But this is why Paul starts this section with the wrath of God, verse 18. He wants to show that everyone apart from Christ is condemned so that they would see their, their need for a Savior by pointing out that they were guilty sinners. Now, as I said last time, as a pastor, one of the questions I have been asked from time to time is, what about the poor native in Africa? Isn't it interesting? People are always worried about the poor native in Africa. God bless you for being so concerned about people so far away. What about you, right? Well, they, they've never heard the gospel. Or the aborigine in, in the outback of Australia. Is it fair for God to send them to hell? They've never heard about the gospel. Listen, God is completely righteous. He will never let anyone go to hell that would have gone to heaven if they only had the information. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. But how about this? You have heard the gospel. You do know what's involved. What are you doing about it, right? You're worried about the native in Africa. What about you right here in America? So what about this person who's never heard the gospel? Is it fair that God sends them to hell? Well, the following section in Romans answers that very question. Let's read verses 19 and 20. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Look, again, reviewing a little bit from last week, this is what is called natural or general revelation which is God's disclosure of himself in creation. In creation. One of the classic verses uh, or passages on this, as we looked at last time, Psalm 19. One th verses 1 through 6, I'll just read verses 1 to 3, though. Where David said, The heavens, the universe, declares the glory of God, and the firmament, the sky, shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. And night into night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. What is David saying? He is saying that the creation is speaking a universal language to the whole world. Doesn't matter what language you speak, everyone can see the creation. And the creation is preaching constantly of the glory of God, that God exists, He's real, and so on. As we stated last time, a revelation is something that has to be made known to us by God. Something we could not know apart from God revealing it to us because, listen, it's knowledge that comes to us from another dimension, from the spirit dimension. As we have talked about, we, human beings, are trapped in the physical realm. We can't leave this realm. Now, there are those in the occult and Eastern mysticism, they think they travel back and forth all the time. That's a deception. 
The devil is making them think as they practice transcendental meditation or visualization or some other technique that uh, they've been told will allow them to transcend the natural realm and enter into the spirit realm. And certainly, beings are contacting them. They think these beings are ascended masters, um, you know, spirits that will give them information to help them live their lives. It's all a lie. It's the devil deceiving them. What did Paul say? The, the devil transforms himself into what? An angel of light to deceive. He comes across looking like a good guy. He's really a bad guy. The ultimate bad guy, right? Now the spirits, they can they live in the spirit realm, but they can come into the physical realm. But we can't go to where they are. They have to come to where we are. And that's what revelation is. It's God invading the natural realm with a message. Or sometimes he'll wiggle his finger a little bit in the natural realm and we freak out because it's a miracle. You know? Like when he parted the Red Sea. Or, you know, caused manna to fall for 40 years. Or raised Lazarus after four days in the grave. That's a big deal for God. That's a big deal for us. We call it a miracle. But for God, it's just him exercising his power in our realm. No big deal. But because we couldn't, you know, Job said it. He asked the rhetorical question. Can a man by searching find God? Can a person through an intellectual quest in the natural realm find God in the supernatural realm? No, it's not going to happen. I don't care if you take the lotus position, look at your belly button for two hours and go, um... You're not leaving this realm. You're not leaving this realm. But God graciously invaded our realm, the physical realm, with a divine message. Now, in the old days, in the Old Testament, God revealed himself through visions and dreams and angels' visitations, and God spoke through prophets and so on, giving us little pieces of information, giving them, I should say, you know what I mean, giving the human race little pieces of information about himself. Of course, the ultimate revelation was what? The incarnation. Jesus Christ becoming a man, right? And the writer of the Hebrews tells us that. God at different times and in various ways in times past uh, revealed himself to the forefathers, the Jewish patriarchs, by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, Jesus Christ. The ultimate revelation of God's being was the incarnation, where God became a man, dwelt among us. I'm getting a little bit off the subject, but this is all connected, okay? All connected. So God, in his mercy and grace, invaded the physical realm to give us information. And theologians have divided revelations from God into two basic categories, natural and special. Again, natural or general, sometimes called revelation, is God's revelation of himself in creation. Special or sometimes called specific revelation is God's revelation of himself in the scriptures, the word of God. Guys, natural revelation gives us knowledge about God in general, you know, that he exists, he's powerful, uh, he loves beauty and color. Why do we know that? Because we see it everywhere in the creation. 
Whereas with special revelation, God gets, you know, up close and personal with us. He introduces himself. He tells us his name. He tells us personal things about himself, what he loves, what he hates, how we can know him personally and live with him in his kingdom eternally and so on. These are things that natural revelation, as powerful as it is, in other words, things fallen in creation, just can't tell us about him because natural revelation doesn't get specific. That's why it's sometimes called general revelation about God. But here in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, Paul isn't dealing with special revelation, although the words he speaks are found in special revelations, found in the Bible, but he's not talking about special revelation here in Romans 1. He's talking about natural revelation. Now, guys, this is the classic passage that deals with God's revelation in creation of himself. And I want to spend just a little bit of time on it this week and next week. And I need you to put on your thinking caps. It's going to get a little technical, but I just can't. You know I'm not going to rush through this. You just, you know me at all, you know. I just can't race through this, okay? But Paul is telling us here that although natural revelation is incomplete in its revelation of God, doesn't tell us his name, doesn't give us specific information about him, Nevertheless, it is such a clear revelation of his existence that anyone who looks at the creation and rejects the existence of God is without excuse, and God will hold them personally accountable on the day of judgment for rejecting or turning a blind eye to the obvious information he has revealed in the creation. Look at verse 19. He talks about this judgment how god's going to hold them accountable they're without excuse he starts off by saying in verse 19 because what may be known hang on to that word what may be known of god is manifest in them he's talking about pagans now for god has shown it to them the word known in verse 19 is the greek word gnostos which means what is knowable about god i mean god can't hold anyone accountable for information he has not revealed is the idea god will only hold people accountable for what information he has revealed to them that they're not going to apply or embrace but here when he says that because what may be known of god is manifest in them for god has shown it to them what paul is saying is that god holds mankind responsible for knowing and acting upon that which can be known from the creation. Now, guys, the creation is the outward testimony of God's existence. In chapter 2, he's going to move inward and give us the inward testimony of God's existence. It's called the conscience. So hang on to that, all right? But the Bible goes on to tell us that if a person is faithful to the light God has given them. Now, we're again, we're dealing with pagans, unbelievers, okay? The Bible goes on to tell us if a person is faithful to the light, and in this case we're talking about natural revelation or the creation, if they're faithful as they look out into the creation, they go, boy, there must be a God. I see beauty everywhere. I see design. I see everything. There has to be a God. I want to know Him. If you're faithful to the light God has given you, He will make sure you get more light, or in other words, more spiritual truth, enough 
to be saved. How will he do that? God's got all kinds of ways of doing things. All right? The simplest way, he'll impress upon your heart to pick up a Bible. As he did with me after I was a Catholic for 23 years or 20, yeah, 25 years. And one day the Lord put it on my heart to start reading the Bible. I had never gone to church, but and the and, and there was little passages that were uh, you were printed in the in the bulletin that we read, but I'd never really read the Bible at all. And one day God impressed on my heart, the day has come for you to. I didn't know it was God. I just thought I was talking to myself. It's okay if you talk to yourself. If you start arguing with yourself, that's a problem. But he did the same thing with Cindy. He laid it on our hearts to open the Bible, and as we read his word, we got saved. Now, it takes different forms. I mean, you could be driving along in the car, and all of a sudden God lays it on your heart. You don't know it's God. Turn on the radio. Yeah, turn on the radio. All of a sudden there's a, somebody preaching the gospel. And you get kind of captivated. You listen. And when they say, would you like to pray to receive Jesus? You say, well, yeah, I really believe this is true. Or you turn the TV on or somebody gives you a Bible track at work. In extreme situations, although it's becoming more and more common today in these last days, Jesus is coming soon, God is appearing to people in dreams and visions, even sending angels to preach the gospel. Because time is short. I heard some time ago a million Muslims a month are getting saved. Because God is appearing to them in dreams and visions and telling them about Jesus. We had a couple in our church. She was raised in Persia as a Muslim. And God gave her three dreams where Jesus came to her. And she wound up getting saved. So I know it's real. I've heard it. But then we had somebody in our own church confirm it. But look, getting back to natural revelation, the very first thing creation reveals to us about God is that he exists. And folks, that's where our faith must begin. You don't have to turn to it, but Hebrews eleven six, Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to him must believe, listen, that he is, he exists, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You know, I think it's interesting. I've talked about this before. I just think it's interesting that the Bible doesn't start out by trying to prove or defend the existence of God, doesn't it? It doesn't, does it? Instead, it just simply starts out with a statement that assumes his existence. In the beginning, God. Now, God doesn't stop there and go, hey, yeah, let me explain why you should believe in me. Again, let me read you verses 19 and 20 out of the NLT. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, that they, that, uh, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so that they have no excuse for not knowing God. Apparently, God didn't think it was necessary to prove his existence since the creation itself testifies to the existence of God. But how exactly? Right, that's a great statement, and we know it. We just read verses 19 and 20, and that's exactly what they, uh, these verses were saying, that God doesn't need, didn't need to uh, 
confirm or prove or argue for his existence with the human heart because the creation was a clear revelation that he exists. But how? How is it a clear revelation of God's existence? How does the creation tell us that God exists? Let me give you three reasons or proofs or arguments from creation that proves the existence of God. This is where I want you to put your thinking caps on a little bit, okay? I'm going to use verses 19 to 20 to kind of launch off, off into a parallel study for a couple weeks that I think is going to be fruitful. I could spend many more weeks in a couple, but I'll spare you that. Uh, but listen, lest you think I'm so smart when I teach you this stuff, I took this. From Norm Geisler, very brilliant guy with the Lord now. These are taken from Norm Geisler's series, 12 points that prove Christianity is true. Now I'll just give you, uh, in, in this one section, uh, Romans uh, 1, 19 and 20, how the creation testifies that God exists. Okay, uh, and there's three reasons. And that they are the cosmological reason, the teleological reason, and the moral reason. All right, first of all, the cosmological reason. Cosmology is the study of the universe, very simply. Under that point, first of all, everything that had a beginning had a cause. Now we're talking about the cosmological argument. How can we look into nature? When we look into nature, the universe... How do we know God exists? Well, first of all, everything that had a beginning had a cause. Now, the question is, did the physical universe have a beginning? You say, what kind of a question is that? Well, I ask it because for many years, scientists believed the universe was eternal. They believed the universe was eternal. And therefore, it had no beginning, which meant it didn't need a cause. Only God is eternal of all the beings, angelic or human, only God is eternal. He never had a beginning. He will never have an end. You say, well, how does that work? We'll find out. If I'm not mistaken, though, those who understand mathematics very well, physicists and others, it is technically impossible for something to be eternal. We can even prove that. When I say we, I'm I can't. People who are a lot smarter than me, they can prove it on paper through complex mathematical equations. They have already figured out it's possible for something to be eternal. So God is eternal. Even we know that's possible as human beings. However, they used to think the universe was eternal, always existed. But as their understanding of the universe increased through the use of more powerful telescopes, they realized, scientists, astrophysicists and so on, they realize that the universe is growing old. It's wearing out. How do they know that? Because they have seen energy being used up. Stars are dying. The universe is running down and moving towards an end. In fact, now scientists talk about its eventual heat death. They use the term heat death to describe a time in the future. It's always billions of years down the road. Not that you guys have to worry about, they tell us, like they know. Well, how old is the earth? It's 16.5 billion years old. How, how do you know that? They talk like they, you know, 
You doubt me? I mean, were you there? No, you weren't. How do you know it's 16 point? Whatever. And how do you know it's going to take billions of years for the whole thing to burn up or to burn out? So you take it with a grain of salt. But they use the word, the term hita to describe a time in the future when the universe will eventually reach a uniform temperature. Stars, planets, everything. What will that temperature be? From what I've been able to, to figure out, reading things and all, it's going to be somewhere around absolute zero. Well, how cold is that? It's about 460 degrees minus 460 degrees Fahrenheit. It's so cold, all molecules stop moving. Everything stops. There is no heat that can produce any energy for any movement or work in the atoms and the molecules and so on. It's technically impossible to get there, but that's theoretical, what, theoretically what it is, okay? But what they have figured out is that, you know, when eventually the universe is going to reach this heat death uh, and therefore will have no more heat to produce energy to accomplish any useful work, in other words, the universe is growing old. It's wearing out and will eventually die. Now, that shouldn't be a big shock to us because that's what the Bible's been talking about for centuries, right? Uh, Psalm 102, verses 25 and 6. I mean, God's been talking about this in his word for many, many years. Psalm 102, verse 25. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Listen. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will grow old like a garment. You can read the rest of it. Guys, this is the greatest argument from science. Now, science. The greatest argument from science that proves the universe had a beginning. It's the immutable law that scientists refer to as the second law of thermodynamics. The first law of thermodynamics says that the amount of actual en energy in the universe remains a constant. Energy can't be created. It can't be cake out of existence. It can change forms. It can be converted from one form to another is what we're talking about, basically. But the actual first law of thermodynamics says that energy is a constant. It can be used in different ways, but it remains a constant. The second law of thermodynamics says the amount of usable energy. So first law, the amount of actual energy. Second law, the amount of usable energy is decreasing. Or, as scientists tell us, in a closed, isolated system, this is what naturalists, which is the foundation for evolution, this is what they believe about the universe. The universe is a closed, isolated system. I'll talk about that more in just a second, okay? Uh, but in a closed, isolated system, the amount of usable energy decreases. In other words, things are running down. They're wearing out. They're going from order to disorder. It's called entropy. Entropy. The universe is running down. Again, it's wearing out, which means it isn't eternal as scientists once thought. Its usable energy is being depleted. Robert Jastrow, the great agnostic and founder of the Goddard Institute for Space research and noted astrophysicist said this and I quote once hydrogen has been burned within a star and converted converted to heavier elements it can never be restored to its original state minute by minute year by year as hydrogen is hydrogen is used up by the stars the supply of this element in the universe grows smaller end quote 
Guys, this is one of the most firmly established of all scientific laws. There are no known exceptions to the second law of thermodynamics, and that is in a closed, closed system, it always runs down. The energy is always used up. Um, it uses up its usable, burns up its usable energy. Guys, the idea behind a, a closed system like the universe is that there is nothing from the outside of the universe that is replenishing the energy that's being used up. Let me put it this way. Think of your, your car. Your car is an open system. What do I mean? Well, you fill the gas tank up, and that fuel is used to create energy. That energy through combustion allows your car to move forward, right? Once your gas tank gets low because you've used up the energy inside of it, you go to a gas station, open up the gas tank, and you fill it up again. That's an open system. Imagine you filled your car up with gasoline to the very brim, and then you capped it with something that would be permanent, a permanent cap. You can never open it up again. Now you have a closed system. And when all the energy is used up, all the gasoline is burned up in your car, it stops running. And that's it. The same is true with the universe. The universe is a closed system. There's nothing from the outside replenishing the energy that's being expended. Once the energy is gone, the universe will stop existing. It will stop functioning. It will, it will die, basically. Stop running, if you use the car illustration, right? Um, it's burning up its usable fuel, bringing it to an end. But here's the problem. Since scientists have come to realize the universe is going to have an end, that means, listen, it had to have a beginning. And if the universe had a beginning, it had to have a cause that brought it into existence. It's called the principle of causality. Everything that exists that is going to have an end had to have a beginning. And everything that had a beginning had to have a beginning cause because nothing can't produce something. David Hume, even David Hume, the most ardent skeptic that ever lived, argued, uh, 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 excuse me, um, agreed with this. He said, and I quote, I never asserted so absurd a proposition as that anything might arise without a cause. Norm Geisler said the principle of causality is the fundamental principle behind all science and all rational thought. Only a fool would deny it. All right. So our first point under the cosmological argument, everything that had a beginning had a cause. Number two, the universe had a beginning, therefore the universe had a cause. Look, either the first verse in the Bible is true. In the beginning, God, the divine cause, created everything, or else we're left with the absurd premise, which evolution is built upon, by the way, that in the beginning, everything came from nothing all by itself. Next time some heady evolutionary student thinks they know everything, laughs at your faith because you believe in God, I, I would say to them, look, you have more faith than I have. What do you mean? I believe in the beginning God, a divine being, all-powerful, all-intelligent, created everything. You believe in the beginning Everything came from nothing all by itself. 
That takes more faith than I have. So let me just shake your hand here. Well, let me tell you this. When the scientists realized the universe was going to have an end, which meant, again, that it had to have a beginning, uh, they had to come up with another explanation for the existence of the universe. They couldn't maintain any longer that it was eternal. Right? I mean, they're watching stars burning out. Galaxies coming to an end. They realized that the universe is going to have an end, which means it had to have a beginning. It was They no longer could maintain that it was eternal. It's always been here. And since they now had evidence that the universe, was, universe had a beginning, that meant it had to have a beginning cause. Of course, they rejected God as the cause, which meant they had to invent another cause, so they came up with the Big Bang Theory. Listen to this. Isaac Asimov, an atheist, gave this explanation for the beginning of the universe. All right, here it is. There was a state of nothingness once, and then, bang, there was something. When you have nothing, you have two possibilities. Either it can remain nothing, or it can become something. Guess what? It became something. Now, that is the best explanation the evolutionist can give you for how the universe came into being. It's much simpler to say, well, in the beginning God made it, but they're not, they don't want to accept God. They're atheists, many of them. So they had to come up with another explanation. Well, here it is. In the beginning, nothing produced everything. We got it figured out. <laughs> Wonderful, right? Um, if nothing produced everything, if there was nothing and all of a sudden the universe existed, as somebody said tongue-in-cheek, if that's true, I wonder how long it would take an empty garage to produce a Cadillac. <laughs> right? But listen, Asimov is not alone. British science, there's many others, but... but British scientist and atheist Anthony Kinney said, according to the Big Bang Theory, the whole matter of the universe began to exist at a particular time in the remote past. A proponent of such a theory, at least if he's an atheist, must believe that, mat that the matter of the universe came from nothing and by nothing, end quote. So if you think I am putting words in their mouth, no, I'm not. This is their position. So for the atheist guys, nobody times nothing equals everything. Now, not all atheists and agnostics are um, that dishonest or that ridiculous. Some of them understand the ramifications of what they believe. That's not to say they are going to change what they believe, but they're at least honest enough to admit it. I'll give you one quote, again, quoting Robert Jastrow. Here's what he said, and I quote, Now we see the astronomical evidence supports the biblical view of the origin of the universe. Consider the enormousness of, this, of the problem. Science has proved that the universe ex exploded into being at a certain moment. It asks, what cause, uh, it asks what cause produced this effect. Who or what put the matter and energy, and energy into the universe? Science cannot answer these questions. 
For scientists who have lived by his faith, for, for, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been there for centuries. Yeah, no doubt reading the book of Genesis. All right, the next argument after the cosmological arg argument for the existence of God is the teleological argument. This is basically the argument from design. The argument from design. The teleological argument uh, argues that everything in the natural realm that demonstrates design had to have a designer and therefore a maker or a creator. I mean, God made us smart enough to know that you can't have a painting without a painter. You can't have a sculpture without a sculptor. You can't have what? Um, a building without a builder. Even so, you can't have creation without a creator. This is just simple logic and common sense that everything that demonstrates design had to have a designer. The only thing we need to determine is, does the universe in general and life in particular demonstrate design? Well, let's look at life first. The more science looks at life, and of course, as knowledge has increased and science has grown. And by the way, science textbooks are always being updated and revised. I've never been in a Christian bookstore yet where the Bible on the shelf had a sign, new updated and revised version. Although, well, we've got to be careful. Because the world is trying to rewrite the Bible and saying it's updated and revised. I'm talking about God's never touched it. It's perfect from the moment it left his mouth and came to the pens of the writers who wrote down God's word. But the more science looks at life, the more complex living organisms become because of our increase of knowledge, right? The body, for example, is made up of trillions of cells. That's hard to get your mind around. Our human bodies are made up of trillions of cells. In just one of those cells, again, one out of trillions, the amount of genetic information has been estimated to fill at least 1,000 books containing 500 pages each. Where did all this digitally coded genetic information come from? The evolutionists says it evolved. The genetic code runs the cell. The cell can't run without it. It has to be there before the cell can function. It's kind of like saying um, a computer, uh, you know, the, the code for a computer, the operating system, can be generated by the computer simultaneously after it, you know, it's just being created or whatever. You could, you could create a computer and then leave it sit for a billion years. It will never generate the code needed to run itself. That code has, the operating system has to be there if the computer is going to function. Now, I'm not a computer genius, but I'll tell you this. I would imagine that they have been written sophisticated enough programs where once the operating system is up and running and the computer is running, they can maybe code into it 
some things that will allow it to maybe um, uh, adapt itself to certain situations and so on. But you need the coded information of the, in that computer before it can function. Just like, and this is something that a lot of scientists are realizing and are coming to Christ, becoming creationists. Because they re information, it, it's interesting. Our God is an informational God. In the beginning, God said. He spoke information into the human race. Just like he coded information into the human cell. It had to be there before the cell could operate. You can't say, well, they evolved together. You, 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 you can't. That's ridiculous. Do you realize that the human brain is more complex than a 747 aircraft? From what I understand, a 747 is made up of 6 million components. Can you imagine a tornado going through a junkyard and leaving behind a fully formed, fully functioning 747 aircraft with all the complicated systems intact and ready to go? Well, that was the premise of one author, James Pirloff, who in 1999 wrote a book called Tornado in a Junkyard, The Relentless Myth of Darwinism. He basically proposed that. He said evolution is to believe that everything just came through natural processes. That's naturalism, by the way. Natural, naturalism believes that everything happened through natural processes without any supernatural input from any divine being. He said... To believe human beings came as a result of natural processes, if you study this, accidents, mutations in a genetic code, which are almost always harmful, but they believe, because they have to, that accidents and mutations in the cells were a good thing and produced higher forms of life. He says to believe that, you would have to believe that a hurricane, or excuse me, a tornado can rip through a junkyard and leave behind it a fully functioning 747 aircraft. That's absurd. Nobody would believe that. And yet the person is far more complex than the aircraft, believe it or not. Our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made. We have been made in the image of God. God created us, and we are far more complex than any machine on planet Earth. And yet, if we wouldn't believe that about a 747 just coming into existence through some kind of a natural catastrophe, why would anybody entertain the possibility that a human being could come about through natural catastrophes, genetically speaking? I was reading one time about the human eye. The human eye is an incredible device, isn't it? Well, how did it come about? Here's what evolutionists say. This is what I'm not making this up. Evolutionists believe that um, way back in the primordial ooze, um, some kind of a salamander-like creature crawled out of the ooze. And as it laid there in the sun, the sun beating down on this little creature, created a freckle. And that began the process of evolution. Thousands and thousands of years later, that freckle turned into a very complex Something we call the eye. And I wasn't planning on talking about that, otherwise I would have 
brought out all the stats about what the human eye can do. You could look them up. That is science's best explanation for the complexity of living organisms. And we're the most complex of all of them. Just happened through accident, you know, sun beating down in some slimy salamander, creating a little freckle that turned into an eye. You believe that? Oh, yes. What do you believe? I believe that God made us. Oh, you're a fool. You believe in God? That's ridiculous. Oh, but your freckle theory is real, real intelligent. Look, evolution would have you believe that the complexity of life on Earth all came about through, again, a spontaneous generation. Um, by the way, there's something called the, uh, the law of biogenesis, which, again, is one of the most, it, it's, it's immutable. You, you can't refute it. What is the law of biogenesis? It says that life never spontaneously uh, generates from non-life. That's, that's one of the... But when you come to evolution, they throw everything out the window. They have to make all kinds of exceptions. Well, that's true, but not in evolution. Well, why? You're going to tell me that non-life can spontaneously generate life? That's ridiculous. Again, nothing can't produce something. But everywhere we look, guys, we see evidence on the earth of design. Everywhere. You'd have to be somebody that just does not want to look at the evidence honestly. You have an agenda. Therefore, you have to explain away the obvious to cling to whatever it is you want to believe because you want to live apart from God. You don't want God looking over your shoulder. No guilt. No God. You want to live a life of sin? You don't want God looking over your shoulder? That, get rid of him. Just believe he doesn't exist. Or Nietzsche said, God is dead. He died. Somebody was talking about this, and they said uh, they walked into a, a stall of a, of a restaurant bathroom, and on the, the wall of the stall, it said, um, God is dead, sign Nietzsche. Somebody wrote under it, Nietzsche is dead, sign God. <laughs> uh, yeah. Look, um, let me just, I'll, I'll just, we've got to bring this to a close, but let me just, because I don't want to get in yet, um, to look at all, the, all this complex design and ascribe it to chance, which is what naturalism does, because there is no God, uh, it's absurd. And it's man's attempt, obvious attempt, at suppressing the truth about God in his desire to live an unrighteous life. Again, they suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness because they want to live unrighteously. Dr. Norman Geisler gives this illustration. He said, and I quote, Let's say you're on a beach, and you look up into the sky and you see, drink Coca-Cola. What do you assume? Unusual cloud formation? Or that some intelligent being put the message there? Even atheists assume the latter because that little message, drink Coca-Cola, took an intelligent being to put it together, and natural elements, wind and rain and storm, never produced drink Coca-Cola in the clouds. Or, say you get up one morning, 
and go into the kitchen. And the alphabet cereal is spilled all over the table. And right in the middle it says, take the garbage out, mom. What do you assume? An earthquake knocked over the cereal? The wind blew on it and erased the letters? Look, natural forces will never produce take out the garbage, mom, when you spill the alphabet cereal on the table. Only intelligent beings can give it, listen, specified complexity, which is the technical scientific term. Let me end with this, okay? I want to give you one, I give you the difference between natural forces producing random results and then specified complexity. And the difference is the difference between the Grand Canyon and Mount Rushmore. Now, I've been to the Grand Canyon, never been to Rushmore. I've been to the Grand Canyon, and there is definitely a beauty in that canyon. Carved out through natural processes, right? Random, but beautiful. Then you go to Mount Rushmore, and you see the faces of four presidents up there. Nobody in their right mind could look at the Grand Canyon and go, that's the same as Mount Rushmore. Because one is obviously random in its beauty. The other is by intelligent design. It has specified complexity. The problem with many scientists is that they refuse to acknowledge the specified complexity in nature, which points to the creator. Now, I'll leave it there. We'll pick it up next time, God willing. Looking at, again, how the creation declares the existence of God. And I know this is a little technical, a little scientific, but you know what? It's not that we Christians don't have proof. I mean, I've heard people say, evolutionists, evolution is science, Christianity is faith. Right? They've got the science. They're the intelligent ones. We're the dummies who have to just believe because we don't have any evidence. Look, the Bible says that believing in God is not a blind leap into the darkness. The evidence points us in that direction. Then the evidence comes to an end, more than enough to believe, and that's when we take the next step of faith. It's not that we, you know, evolution, um, you know, their theory, uh, the facts don't point to at all. When it comes to the creation, they take a 180 degree turn and jump, take a blind leap into the, into the darkness. We are, Peter says, our faith is built on many what? Infallible proofs. We have proof to back up what we believe. They claim they're so smart. They claim that they have the science. We believe in the science. Okay, how many genders are there? Well, last count, 175. Okay, then. Yeah, you got the science, don't you? Anyway, I'll leave it there. I'll leave it there. Getting off the track here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that our faith is not a stupid blind leap into the darkness. It points in the direction the facts lead and then we take that final step by faith because we were not there to see it happen we were not there when the create when you created everything um, we can't see you face to face but you have revealed very clearly 
and without um, a doubt that you exist. And someday we will see you face to face, Lord. And then we'll never be out of your presence ever again. We ask that you would continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. All right.